0: Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast.
1: We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past, Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility.
0: Welcome, everyone, back to the Evoking History podcast. Today, I'm joined by history educator, Ambar Rodriguez. Ambar and I started at Marquette University at the same time in the master's program. Um, I'm still here working on the PhD. She did the sensible thing and went out and got a real job. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing good, thank you for having me, I'm so excited.
0: I'm excited to have you. It's been a long time since we've talked and so it'll be good to kind of catch up and then also talk about what it is that you're doing. Um, so first off, just start by giving our listeners a little bit of information about yourself.
2: So I am from Visalia, California, which is right in the middle of California, not in the cool coastal area, more um, closer to the mountains than anything else. I had my history journey by majoring in history at University of California, Davis, and then continued to do the master's program where I met been at Marquette University, and my concentration was in United States history, Um, decided to go into education, do another teaching credential education route at Fresno Pacific University, and now I am teaching at a high school.
0: Very exciting. So what was it that made you first become interested in history?
2: I think I was interested in history because I absolutely hated the way history was taught. And I know growing up as a person of color and being told like, no, it wasn't indigenous genocide or no, they were helping people. The United States were going into these territories to help them and they wanted us to go in there. And just having that type of narrative my whole life and me being super upset, I decided that I wanted to do history And not necessarily the revisionist route that a lot of people tend to put on anything that goes against from the traditional narrative, but just accepting of people's histories as far as people of color. And it shouldn't be ethnic studies. It's just regular history.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that because, you know, we often, especially I'm significantly older than than Ambar, but I was taught the whole... Uh, Manifest Destiny, uh, March of Progress by the white settler colonists from England, and there's so much more to our history than that. Not only is that a a whitewashing and a complete misrepresentation of of the actual history of those people as well, but it, it discounts, you know, the various indigenous tribes, the Um, Latinos, uh, the Spaniards in California, the Russians, the Spaniards in Florida, the French, all these other peoples who were here at the same time, and often quite before English settlers. So I try to incorporate that into my history as well when I get a chance to teach it. How did growing up in California, especially the way that California, or I presume not, I lived in California for a little while when I was really young, but I don't really remember it other anything other than a couple of sidewinders getting into a pool with me one time, um, an unrelated note. But what was it like there? Did they talk about the Spanish heritage of California in, in, when you were going to school or the indigenous history of California, or was it still very anglocentric?
2: Very Anglo-centric, and they attempted to do California history. There's fourth grade standards, and in fourth grade, you're supposed to learn about the mission system. But even learning about the mission system, they end up excluding what this indigenous population went through and their interactions with Spaniards. The mission system was basically here's some sugar cubes, build a mission, and ask fourth graders, we're like, oh, look at how cute, let's put little oxen here or little buffaloes. And it was wow. very whitewashed in the sense that these priests are heroes and the father should be canonized as a saint instead of looking at what really happened here. This was form of slavery, and these indigenous people got their cultures wiped out. They were forced into this. Yeah. think they attempted to. The state standard says you need to talk about it, but the California state standards for social science also wants them to have this nice hunky dory version of what really happened with the mission systems.
0: Yeah, so very similar then to the way that we talk about, or the way we talked about indigenous when I was younger, when it was the first Thanksgiving and a bunch of hand turkeys and stuff like that, but the California version. Absolutely. Yeah, Um. that's, that's a shame. I, I, I'm glad to see that there, I, I mean, I guess I should be happy that an attempt is being made, but it's, it, to me, it really does seem honestly kind of pitiful that in 2020, we still aren't being more honest about the actual history of these regions and these peoples.
2: Yeah, I would agree. And I think there are a few teachers or educators who are attempting to produce this narrative where we're putting out oral histories or different primary sources, but I found just this past fall, um, I was teaching slavery. And I had a few parents who called the administration, let other teachers know how I shouldn't be teaching history because or slavery because white people were oppressed too. And my comments stem from a student asked, hey, you said that um, these white male plantation owners had black slaves. Were there any black owners? And I said, yes, but it wasn't flipped to where they owned white people. Blacks were still enslaved. And then a parent got upset with that, and she reported me and other teachers kind of blackballed me because slavery isn't in the 11th grade social studies standards. Uh-huh. And they said deviated from that. And I thought it was interesting that as educators, we're trying to change this narrative, but we're having this backlash.
0: Yeah, that is, um, oh man, thankfully, you know, and I have never taught at that level that I have always, my entire educational history from being a tutor, um, peer educator, all that stuff has all been at the collegiate level and we still, not that there aren't issues there too, but I can't even imagine what it's its like a, teaching at the high school or lower level.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it is not only do I have to navigate my way around the classroom, but navigating around parents and mm-hmm. parents control everything. Like if they don't like something throw a tantrum, go to the school board, and then just when I thought I'm trying to teach real history, they give me these awful textbooks or awful curriculum that I have to pretend I like.
0: That's actually a really good point, the textbook, because there's a lot of uh, textbook controversies, and again, I'm not beholden to, to using any specific textbook, which I love, but I know that there have been... I know more of the situation down in Texas and Oklahoma because I know more people down that way. But, you know, stuff from Moses helped write the Constitution to slavery being a voluntary um, relocation from Africa to the the United States or what became the United States. And it's just insane to me. And, I mean, I get it. I I come from the South, so I'm used to the lost cause narrative and finding any excuse you can – to comment about the Civil War other than it was about slavery or trying to make slavery sound as nice and docile and Disneyland-like as you possibly can but just some of these other things that are brought into it just really how are how are these becoming the standards that, of which we're supposed to educate our children
2: yeah it's really frustrating because I have colleagues who never really majored in history so in California how it works if you want to be a history teacher you don't even have to major in history. You could major in business management as long as your teaching credential is in history. So as I'm talking to colleagues about, hey, you know, the textbook isn't even written by a historian. It's all people in education. There's not even a consultation with any historian. And they just look at me like, as if I'm crazy. And I think doing the master's program at Marquette beautifully ruined me in the sense that I know what literature should be. I know mm-hmm. how it is like reading those three books a class and having our Socratic seminars and just be able to drop this academic knowledge about actual history, academic literature. And then I go back to my history department at a high school and they're just looking at me like, who's Ira Berlin? Bernard Balin? Like, <laughs> no, Okay, <laughs> right. who are these people? <laughs> so I think it also comes with a culture with not really mastering the art of history or knowing academic history and so they're finding the textbooks to be absolutely okay and I know there was one chapter in a textbook where we're looking at women's history and the primary sources they gave were all white males there wasn't one primary source of a person of color or of a woman and the topic was women's history
0: That's a so like, kind of amazing
2: primary sources and like no not
0: at all not what it's like yeah especially I mean you know when we are taught about source bases and using the corpus of knowledge that we accrued over the years textbooks are the least reliable thing out there unless you're you know examining education Um, then they can be considered a primary source but you know they're an aggregated list The good ones do have historians who are writing stuff, but like you said, a lot of them don't. They just have – they're formed out to to anybody who can effectively write.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just so heartbreaking because these textbook companies make so much money by selling it to high school teachers who they don't know really what primary sources are. They just hear that term and document Questions is a very popular thing in the secondary education world, where some of the sources that they have are just trash, and I guess I'm the only one getting frustrated about it in my department or area. Um, so it's hard to use these sources to then teach students if not even the teachers know how to go about these primary sources correctly.
0: Sure, sure, definitely. So, you know, and I remember again, not to make this all about my education, but. Every one of my history teachers was also a coach. It was so tied to the athletics that, you know, and and I had one. I mean, there there was um, Mr. Thorpe to to actually give give him a name. He was a great history teacher. He was actually educated in history and and knew his stuff and would deviate from the textbook as normal, but. Just like five, six years after I graduated high school, I ran into him, and he was no longer teaching because, A, the money just wasn't that great, and he couldn't make a living at it. And I think that there was some dissatisfaction with trying to, to be true to the discipline and also getting pushback from not only parents but also administrators.
2: Yeah, and I've seen that also with good teachers being let go because they're considered too political. And I know there's a great resource, there's a young lady in the Bay Area who she has an Instagram called Decolonize Your Curriculum, and it's all about taking what we're given as teachers and then flipping it around still within the standards of what we're supposed to do. And these teachers are being let go. And I know this year, especially with the climate, something I really want to do is not only do I want to teach students the content, but there's call for action. That What can we do with this content that we just gained? How can we yeah. use our thinking skills to take action and be good citizens of this world?
0: Exactly that. You know, And I think that part of that, I know that they don't do a whole lot of it in high school, it is... Accessing and not just accessing, but assessing primary source documents, because not all primary source documents are created equal. Because we, you know, like you were talking about, there's all kinds of uh, primary source documents about the struggle for women's rights written by dudes who, a, don't accurately reflect what was going on, but are so condescending. Even those who supported it are are super patriarchal, you know. Um, So thinking about how we evaluate primary sources. Who was this written by? Who was it written for? All these things, because that is very necessary, especially in this time, to consume media and and critically examine it so that we can be the informed citizens that we really need to be in a democracy.
2: I completely agree. And I love how you mentioned the media aspect to it. And we live in the age where there's digital archives that we can go through and sit at home and just dig through these primary sources and trying to show my students how exciting this is and I'm probably one of the only ones excited. <laughs> right. I don't know how to properly assess them because there's been this lack of especially social studies in the lower grades where it's just memorizing dates and events and they don't know what to do with them and then once they do they'll be able to evaluate the media better
0: yeah yeah and, and you know that's something that we all run into i think in the discipline is the people who are history buffs and god love history buffs i was a history buff before i, be, I became trained as a you know um a, his, a historian but i couldn't tell you nates and dane you know there are there are probably, uh, 100,000 people in this country who could tell you more facts, quote-unquote, the the date that this thing happened, who was at this battle, and all these other things than I can, because that's not what history is. That's, you know, the old canard when we were being trained is, that's trivia, that's not history.
2: Absolutely. I agree. And I just wish there was more educators who were trained as historians versus educators who went the education route and they teach about the collaboration part have students like work together and do group work and i mean it's good in theory but in practice mm-hmm. it never ends up well in practice There's that's one kid in the group who does all the work and then that other kid just cruises by not doing anything
0: yeah i mean you know uh, that's that whole industrial education thing though because that is if I was going to defend that at all, which I'm not really going to, that does prepare you for a workplace environment, especially a corporate one, but that's not what education should necessarily be. I I really don't like the education as a vocational training model. Now, of course there should be some elements of that, but there should be a lot more to it than just getting somebody prepared to go into a nine to five somewhere.
2: Completely agree. Um, and, like I said, I've, there have been students, hopefully, who've talked about the education system, and when they've attempted to do any type of petitions, they just are shut down by the school board because these people don't want any change or think that students are crazy and they're not taken as serious as they should.
0: Well, yeah, exactly. And then that comes down to PR management. They don't want to get a bad reputation Um, Amongst the the parents and the local businesses who are contributing to the sports teams and funding everything, you know, and and that's another aspect of it that we have to be real honest about is public education in this country is not very well funded. Um, People are always trying to find loopholes around the tax laws that fund education or pulling money from education funds so that you do have to rely a lot on community support. So from that aspect, as an administrator, I can understand why they're a little gun shy on trying to do anything to, that would upset the community. But again, that is shortchanging not only the education of the students, but the entire mission of what education is supposed to be.
2: I agree. And I, really like how you mentioned the funding aspect to it. I know a lot of times people just think like, oh, well, if you don't like the textbook, just buy another textbook, or just go out and change curriculum without knowing how much money is rooted in any choices that we make, or the lack of money, or the misappropriation of funds for other random stuff that happens, but absolutely.
0: Well, you know, and I do think that good work is being out there. I, you know, I kind of feel like I'm dumping on high school teachers, and I, and I don't mean to be because I have a lot of family who's high school teachers, and I know that they're doing the best that they can. And We have some other colleagues who've gone into education in private high schools, and just hearing their stories versus um, yours and other people in the public education side of it are just so different because they don't have that problem with the resources. They're kind of left alone um despite the fact that parents are paying per student so much more so you would think that there would be a lot more parent oversight or helicopter parenting going on and i'm sure there is some it's nowhere near as much and they have a lot of they have in some ways more freedom in the classroom than what i do at teaching at a university and that's insane well it's not insane i'm actually really happy for them but it's just shocking to think about
2: yeah I know like, there's this whole, yes comparison between private schools and charter schools and public schools, and I think at the end of the day, no matter how much freedom someone has, it's up to the educator themselves, um, sure. and hopefully the educator understands the role of history and what actual history is in order to make sure the students know how to evaluate sources and use those critical thinking skills versus the trivia history or those history buffs where are what are the students really learning so right. how to maneuver through this education world i've been trying to maneuver through this education world while hoping i teach academic history versus that history buff stuff
0: without a doubt without a doubt and you bring up a really good point there that there are, are more levels to it than what i'm even giving uh, credence to because there are the charter schools and then the private schools, and so you have this really fractured education system, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm banging the drum for private schools, even though I do appreciate the works that my colleagues in private schools are doing, because that has its own set of problems, because then it boils down to access, because who is able to go to those schools, especially when they cost as much as the college tuition does at the, the private university that I go to?
2: and then looking at the type of students we have like you mentioned a private school gets a different population of students versus my students i live in rural california where most of my students are latinos and their parents work the fields and so they're trying to learn english besides trying to learn content and this past year i had a student who would in the morning out in the fields either whatever they were picking for the season and he would fall asleep in my class and then I have to struggle as an educator versus as a human being. Do I wake him up when he's sleeping or do I let him sleep knowing that he works hard early in the morning before school and then goes back to work after school? And how important was it for me to teach him history for that day versus him needing to provide for his family? area Versus if I taught somewhere else.
0: So I have to apologize to our listeners because I, uh, as many of you know who've been listening for a few episodes, I'm still recording from home, and they are still doing work on my apartment building. So they are sawing pipe or something. So if you hear a strange reverberation, that's what it is. But that is an incredibly excellent point, And You know, the difference between rural city and inner city schooling, that is something that I hear a lot. There is so much pressure on the students, aside from just performing well academically trying to make a living with them and their family and survive in these economic times that we are currently living in, um, that is something that has to be considered. I mean, like you said, sleep is incredibly important not only to learning, but also to brain development body development. You know, and just as we hear often that the only meal some of these kids are getting a day is the meal that they're getting at school, Also, if they're having to work to support their family and something comes up where they can't perform, you know, help out in the field or if they're working some other job and because of the tiredness, because they didn't get the 20 minute nap they got in your class or whatever and they got injured. That is taking not only is that physical injury to them, but that is taking a source of income and and possibly food from their entire family. away. So that's a lot to
2: deal with. Absolutely. And when we talk about funding once again and resources, um, I mean, we would hope that the school recognizes this and supports them. But once again, it's individual teachers in the classrooms who not only are we forced to teach our curriculum, which we already have issues with, but also how do we help these students who might not have any adults in their life? or who struggle with other issues as well.
0: Right, yeah, like having to be primary caregivers for younger siblings or elderly parents, grandparents, that kind of thing. There's just so much that's going into this. Um, I want to transition away from that aspect for at least for a little bit though. Hey, uh, I would like to hear more about the research that you did as you were getting your master, so the types of history that you do as a historian, even if you haven't really focused on that because you're, you're more in the relevant of an educator now. But then I also want to talk about what it's like giving all these challenges that we have set up that are on the best day in public school. These are the things that are going on. But then we are, when I first contacted you, it was because of the COVID-19 crisis. That but now we also have the unrest following the the police murder of George Floyd.
2: At Marquette, I did West Coast history. And before the West Coast was even property of the United States. So I looked at early 19th century inter-ethnic marriages between the Spaniards who colonized what's considered California. And their interactions and marriages with who they considered outsiders. Either Anglos or outsiders. Meaning people from southern Mexico, because they had a distinct identity of being specifically Californios, and that's how the term California eventually involved, pink Khalifa, that story. But looking at race, class, gender, three bases of everything fun, and analyzing why those marriages took place. And I found that a lot of those marriages took place for social status. So these outsiders, these Americans, these Anglo people came to California and they ended up marrying these rich landowners, daughters. And instead of them saying, oh, well, we're Americans, we're going to do things our way, they fit into their culture, which was different than switching the narrative where the outsiders, as far as Americans love to be like, this is America, you do what we say. It was these Americans saying, no, we want to be Catholic. We want to learn Spanish. We are going to do what you tell us to do because this is your geographic space and this is your home. And once gold rush happened, um, New Spain became Mexico, 1821. That kind of shift identities and the understanding of what being a California was. So seeing that dynamics, specifically in California, where it was New Spain, Mexico, the United States territory, all within 30 years, and how identity shifted. Um, That was my specialty, and I guess my jam in trying to research that.
0: Right. And I think that that is an incredibly important thing to consider. Um, Again, I would say a significant portion of our listeners probably don't know the story, but these landowners had their families had been in what becomes California for generations. I mean, some of them centuries. So it was an entirely different idea of, well, than what most people have of the area because we always think of the West and, and moving everything. You know, we have this old Western, empty spaces, no Native Americans or very few manifest destiny idea of everything. Whereas this was a very settled region that had been for centuries, much longer than the East Coast, you know, as a colonized area, quote unquote, you know, again, I, I kind of hate to even use that term because I don't want to discount the Native American peoples who were living in both places beforehand. But, you know, if we are thinking of a city in the mind of colonial era um, people, the West Coast was probably more developed than the East Coast, at least initially.
2: Yeah, and I knew that when I wanted to do anything related to my research project, and I wanted to look at the West Coast, and a lot of people don't think the West Coast existed until you mentioned like it was this frontier land, very romanticized, and it was barren. And so when I mentioned looking at like late 18th, early 19th century California, there, like, there was people there. Well, besides the obvious indigenous humans that already existed in this space, right. it was hard to figure out where I belong because Spain colonized California. So was I a Latin Americanist or did I do United States history because California transitioned into the United States? So even as I was doing my research, I was also trying to find, I guess, an identity for my project. Like where does it fit into this in the traditional area? American Revolution and the early Republic, no mention of what's going on on the West Coast at all because of that struggle.
0: Without a doubt, and even beyond that, I mean, I think that you you mentioned earlier about the the rapid changes in markers of identity in that thirty years over who supposedly controlled the space, even though the people didn't change, is the, the 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 for lack of a better term, foreign power who supposedly controlled the space did, you know, and I. And I am nowhere near even a, a neophyte when it comes to this stuff, so I definitely de- defer to Ambar. But I know that I have read accounts where the very powerful land-owning families in what becomes California were also pushing back against controls coming out of Mexico City, much less Spain.
2: Yeah, 100%. They did not – I have read that when it became Mexico in 1821, they refused to even hang up the Mexico flag. They had no connection to the space that was further away from than California and Texas, like Mexico city to where a lot of them lived in California. So they had no, they didn't want to identify as Mexicans. They didn't want to be Mexicans and they didn't take up that Mexican identifier until the Anglos came in and the United States wanted some fun with that territory and instead of being this distinct California identity it was no we're Mexican they hang up Mexico's flag and it was now Mexicans versus this other power the United States when before like you mentioned they didn't want connections with Mexico they didn't see that as their identity to be Mexican
0: yes definitely so <sighs> I, I have so many questions that I don't know enough to ask them. Um, so then let's talk about then what happens to these families that have had Anglos marry into them and have started acculturating themselves to the, this Californial identity. But what happens over time with that?
2: I think there was mixed conflicts or situations that existed. I know with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, they promised these Mexicans who existed in the space, you get to keep your land, you get to do business as usual, yet a lot of these people who had a lot of land, such as Avila Beach is super popular in California, they weren't able to prove that they owned this land because Spanish... I guess paperwork wasn't good enough for the Americans who came in. So they ended up losing the space. And I know that there's been a lot of families who are still trying to fight their property rights from their families own this land. And a lot of them who did end up marrying an American were better off in that transition because they were able to keep the land. The American made paperwork to prove that they own certain property. Because I guess saying, oh, by that last tree to the left wasn't good enough. Sure, um, sure. So I know that they fared better in that transition versus those who didn't have the appropriate connections or even the better understanding of the English language or how American law works to keep their lands or to even churches because Catholicism wasn't popular with Protestant America. So keeping the church going as well.
0: I think that's a really important thing because it's not like in in some situations when we defrauded Native Americans through the treaty system and didn't recognize their claims. It was because we could go, oh, there's not any kind of paperwork, so therefore it's invalid. You can't prove it, and we don't recognize that – not that there was the same concept of land ownership even, so there was that. Here is a situation where there was paperwork. It was just in a language that, and from a power, that they decided not to recognize once the treaty was signed because of, well, the American story, I guess. Yeah.
2: colonialism.
0: Yeah, yay, colonialism. White settler colonialism. And I also think that, like you said, I think a lot of people think California history starts with the gold rush in 48, and it definitely does not. I mean, this was an incredibly rich region— Because think about the land and in it, there were vast farms just as there are now, even though, you know, the, the scarcity of water resources was the same there. That's more of a Southern California thing than the entire state.
2: Yeah. And then just California being so vast itself, even within California, the Spaniards stayed on the coast for a reason. They didn't decide to enter inland California. So Having a lot of indigenous refugees from the coastal region move into Central California influenced how those indigenous populations not only interacted within their own community, but interacted with these new refugees and interacted with the idea that the Spaniards could come at any time and colonize our region. So how they set up certain defense systems, how the gender role shifted to women also having to do defense battles or attacks to save their community. And I think in California history the inner native groups that exist also get left out cuz everybody likes to see Spanish colonialism with the mission system and then the <sighs>
0: Yeah, or it's a setting for Zorro, it's, you know, one of those things.
2: Absolutely.
0: Um and that is something that we often forget how vast california is um and especially at a time when and all these state borders now they've been codified in law now so they actually i guess kind of are a real thing but in the time period we're talking about they're just a vague idea they're just lines drawn on a map that don't mean anything to the people living there
2: so. yeah i mean it's not like one day this imaginary line popped up out of nowhere <laughs> and right a lot of people forget the russians were also in california as well yes. so just different type of history than the history I looked at in California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's where do these stories fall on the traditional United States timeline when during this time period, we were looking at East Coast 13 colonies in the American Revolution.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And again, ignoring it, the indigenous and the Spanish in, in Florida, which... On that East Coast, come on, you know.
2: Yeah, they don't exist.
0: <laughs> right. Um, I would, I do want to start going towards the the COVID nineteen stuff now, because we are getting on forty minutes into the interview, and I don't want to keep you much past an hour, because I'm sure you have better things to do than talk to me. But before I go, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you ever see yourself? And I know that you are in, in the education and in doing. Great work there. Um, I follow you on Facebook and see what you're doing, and it always makes my heart happy to see not only your education but your activism. Do you see yourself with all the struggle and the fight that you've gone through sticking with it, or do you think that you'll turn back towards the academic side and pursue a Ph.D., whether in history or an Ed.D. or something like that?
2: That's a great question. I ask myself that every day. Every day it changes. So there's days where I reach out to institutions because I do want to pursue a PhD in history but Mm -hmm. where I am located in California we only have about two or three institutions of higher education and they don't offer PhD programs. There's more prisons than colleges or universities in my area so I would have to four hours away just to do a PhD program so I would love to do on one day, that would be the goal, but as far as staying in politics, I sit on the central committee of my Tulare County, and I'm also a district delegate for my congressional region as well, so if I move, I also lose being involved in helping my community, and a lot of people in this community move out because we don't have those resources, instead of staying in. So I'm conflicted daily to do I leave and get that Ph.D. I want or do I stay here and help the community that I love?
0: I mean, I think it can be both, um, honestly. And, you know, you you definitely wouldn't have the day to day impact on your community while you were at least four hours away and possibly even further than that, because of just the realities of fit and finding a an department to get into. Um However, it, that, then the question becomes, aside from the personal fulfillment of getting the PhD, what kind of connections, because it's not like you can't be active where you go to, to university, because I'm active here and I'm not from Wisconsin or Milwaukee. Um, and part of the reason I wasn't super active when I was a master's student, because it was just like, well, I'm, I'm just going to be here for two years, how much, and aside from adjusting to graduate work, and doing everything else, how much time do I really have to give to that? But now that I've gone into the PhD, and the reality is that I was going to be here longer, I I did start to become more involved. Um, And I've made some really good connections, not only here, but in in other places. So it's finding that balance that if you got the degree and, you know, sharpened your skills as an organizer, politically involvement, and all these other things— is that then worth the four to five years that you would be away all this skill set and knowledge that you would bring back to the community? And that's a hard question to answer. Um, for myself, I know that I probably won't return to where I grew up. A because just the person that I am now and the person I was then are so different that I don't know that I would be comfortable there. Um, but again, I'm, I'm kind of, laying my own thing on top of this so that's just what i would say that goes to your internal struggle about this but there are so many things to consider
2: thank you uh yeah like there are so many things to consider and if i do get a phd in history like i then ask myself what do i want to do with it do i want to sharpen my skills and get into that research type base or do i want to move into teaching at universities nearby here or maybe advocate for more universities because like i said there's more prisons and cows and there is higher education in my area
0: which so is then, disgusting but yes yeah.
2: i find that activism in attempting to work at a place where i can use my phd uh
0: you know there's always the Here I am saying all these things you can do. I'm not the one who has to to put it in the But there's always the Ph.D., J.D. route, because then, you know, I mean, that really – and that's something also, again, that I'm considering once I finish the Ph.D. going into the J.D., just because this is a nation of laws. And even though we don't often follow them, as you can see at any of the protests out there and the reaction to people um, expressing their First Amendment right – being able to navigate and advocate within those laws and use those levers of power against those who would use them to oppress. Maybe I'm romanticizing it, but there is something that appeals to me about that.
2: Probably that anarchist in you or something. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly so. I love the destruction of knowing That knowledge where you're not just saying random things because, oh, my heart feels it. No, you've been trained and taught and this is exactly up your alley versus going into it blindly without any knowledge. So that JD is very lucrative and, yeah, that'd be beautiful.
0: So anyway, I mean, you know, you have plenty of time to make these decisions and I'm sure whatever decision you come to will be well considered and also come from your heart because I do think that that's important too. Um, Because we are creatures not just of intelligence. We are creatures of heart and soul. And and keeping both fed, I think, is very important. And that's about as religious as I am willing to get here. (laughs) Anyway, so what has it been – what was it like? I mean, I don't know if the area within California, you saw a – large spike in COVID or, or what the response was. I know that the California state response seemed to be good looking at it from afar. I don't know what your thoughts are from the inside.
2: I think the response went really well for bigger cities like the Bay Area, San Francisco, um, Los Angeles. But for some reason my county is backwards and we, we were the number one county with the highest spikes and we're smaller compared to these larger cities. These people didn't stay at home. They continued business as usual. And it was super frustrating, especially when I would hold Zoom sessions for my students where they're like, oh, no, I'm going to so-and-so's house to hang out. And they just took it as a longer vacation instead of actually saying, like, no, COVID exists, not made up.
0: Right. Yeah. Now, was that, and you may not know was this the highest spike per capita or just the highest spike because you the numbers are smaller so even if you don't have as many cases, it's going to um, uh, appear higher because of the smaller population?
2: From my understanding, it was the per capita numbers. Okay. Um, in the larger counties near us, their numbers were really low. Their mayor stepped up, their board of supervisors. In Tulare County, I've been struggling with the board of supervisors to protect their citizens. Um, especially citizens with disabilities or the unemployment rate. How can we protect these people to make sure they live in in housing or have access to food? Food Link of Tulare County has been strained. They've been doing triple, three times or four times the amount of distribution as normal, but they have less volunteers because volunteers are scared to go out and help. So they've asked the Board of Supervisors to bring in the National Guard. They refused. They asked the Board of Supervisors for rent freeze or for money for small businesses. But the Board of Supervisors hasn't been showing up here.
0: That is unfortunate. Um, but I think that that is, is a good thing to to get out there because we tend to think of, especially states, by – their politics nationally and how that is everything is homogenous and that is completely insane. You know, and your story that you're telling our listeners shows that that there are are small counties everywhere, whether they are blue or red or whatever, where there hasn't been the political will or necessarily even interest to really do right by their constituencies.
2: Agreed. And I think that hopefully it encourages people to, reach out to their local politics. I know a lot of times people get disillusioned with electoral college and national politics without realizing that change comes from the bottom and we start here locally. And If that means running for office or even going out to vote, that's super important as well.
0: Without a doubt, because just think about it, usually the highest ranking uh, police officer in your county is the sheriff. And if you don't think that matters, well, look around you. Yes. We are nowhere near being out of this COVID crisis. We have hit a lull in because of national events. It's kind of disappeared off the radar, and I understand that. But have you seen a dip in your local numbers? Are they continuing to rise, or have they just maintained steady?
2: Um, I think they keep going higher. I think Memorial Day weekend doesn't help with that as well, where a lot of people went to the parks or letting their kids play on the playground, sneezing, coughing on that stuff. Um, yeah, we keep seeing the numbers increase, which is unfortunate.
0: Yeah, it is. Do you Have you heard any plans on how they are addressing the new school year? Because I know that there has been a lot of – or did they even cancel the school year, I guess? I guess they did since you said Zoom calls.
2: Yeah, what happened is this past semester, the spring semester, the students were recommended to do work. The students were not forced. We were not allowed to give any Fs. So if the student didn't do work, we put it as N.A. Or we, if they did somewhat of a work and it wasn't good enough, we had to return it back to them and put N.A. because we weren't allowed to give them anything below an A. So it's mostly credit-based work. It had about... 60% of my students participate. It, it's a hit or miss how next year is going to look like. It's rumored that it's going to be a hybrid system where we have one group shows up Monday, Wednesday, another group shows up Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday is going to be distance learning for the students. So in theory, it sounds great, but in practice, these students aren't necessarily going to do the work. It's going to be the same thing again. They thought it was an A an easy pass, those who already had an F before March 13th, they just got an incomplete, so it doesn't influence their overall um, GPA as well, so it's hard to have these students take it seriously when there's no consequences for them not doing work.
0: For sure, for sure, Uh, you know, and that is a really hard thing to balance, because, you know, in, in some ways, I actually applaud them for doing that, because it and I understand if they had an F before, they probably were going to get an F anyway. But it, I also ha- find myself feeling sympathy for anybody trying to do anything in a pandemic. Um, so that's that's a hard needle to thread. Um, I, I think that the the hybrid stuff that you mentioned, your district is is planning on doing in the fall, is very interesting. And I know that you have to have some kind of plan, and the university is – come out with some hybrid recommendations as well um and i have a lot more latitude in the planning like i like i mentioned earlier so it's like okay well whatever um whereas because at most i won't have anywhere near the number of students per day that you would um so it's it's much more important to get that structure in place but i also feel that we are so early june 5th as we record this there's no way of knowing what this is going to look like in August and September when places start going back to school.
2: Uh, And there's been a few parents already complained as far as the students going to school, they're going to have to wear masks all day. And the parents said they don't feel safe for their child to wear masks all day because of the CO2 that's going to be breathed in and that they don't want the students to wear masks and the teacher shouldn't wear masks either because how are the students supposed to hear? Then that puts... My health at risk, I mean, my immune system hates me. I'm always sick with these random things. And so I fear for myself that sometimes the districts aren't taking teachers' health into considerations. They're so focused on the students and the parents of the students that sometimes they neglect that these teachers, some of my colleagues have kids that are at home. So them trying to do Zoom calls while taking care of their kids, um, that's also an issue as well besides our health.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. There's so much more that needs to be worked out. Um, Because you're right, you know, how many students or not students, I just said it myself, how many educators at whatever level, I mean, you know, when I was going to school, we had several, they seemed ancient to me then, because I was young, but they, you know, in their 50s or 60s. Um, Who are cancer survivors or have somebody at home who's going through COPD or or anything really, you know, and then younger people, too, who have these illnesses that you just don't recognize as being immunocompromised. I think that there is a, a legitimate and some fear amongst educators and something that is going to have to be addressed. The administrators are not thinking about because they are not on that front line. Sure, they might be in an office on campus and could potentially get it because of the way the stuff spreads. But they're not the one who's in front of a classroom, in front of anywhere from, you know, a a small class, say 20 kids, up to 100 and something kids a day.
2: And then I'm lucky I work with older students at a high school level versus I know teachers who work with kindergartners kindergartners where they sneeze on them all the time or cough on them. And how do you have a little kid telling them? hey, stay back six feet. They have no comprehension of that. So.
0: Exactly. Exactly that. Um, what has the climate been like there in the wake of the protests?
2: It's been interesting. Uh, there was protests last Saturday. There was one actually uh, at a high school where, where the gate is. They put up some signs. Well, the principal didn't like the fact that his students were being activists and putting up signs. Um, he drove by and flipped them off. Um, oh, my kept, God. Yeah, so he kept driving around his high school as a principal, flipping off his own students. Um, this principal has background of being racist. He only hires white males um, as administration. Um, so it's interesting to see that this educator of person in position of power flipping off his own students when they were trying to make this vigil and just have signs. It wasn't even a violent protest. They were just putting up beautiful signs. And then on the other side of town, that's where things got out of hand with a few Trump supporters trying to run over protesters. That, yeah, that was my little town.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's really the whole running over protesters things and how that has developed since really the uh, DAPLA protests and Ferguson and everything to now becoming states are trying to pass laws where it's legal to run over protesters who are blocking the street. and That, yeah, that makes my brain hurt um, trying to understand it all. Yeah. yeah, well, that's too. Well, my, my, yeah, well, my heart definitely hurts. And I guess that that's what I should say is the heart. Intellectually, I try and understand the hate. And maybe I shouldn't. But, you know, part of what I study is far right movements and extremism and violence. So I'm trying to understand the intellectual origin of it. And there, I just don't. And I'm glad that I don't. But man, it's just super frustrating that there can be something. This person is minorly inconveniencing me by blocking the road, so I'm going to to run them over with something that is a couple tons and easily could kill them, if or at the very least cripple them. Nice.
2: crazy to that humans that exist with like hate in their heart, like the drivers who the protesters in hometown. They circled around multiple times throwing water bottles at the protesters first. This is an important series of events
0: that have taken place. It, it really is. Um, and we'll see what happens. I mean, I think that the tensions in this country, um, as everyone knows, are really high right now. There's no telling where they're going to go. I am fearful for where they're going to go, especially as we are running towards that election in November, but it's not my job as a historian to predict the future, although I will give you my opinion if you ask. So.
2: (laughs) get a opinion, too, since we study the cycles of it.
0: Right, exactly. Um, Actually, you know, I I heard somebody, and I wish I could remember who the person was because I heard it secondhand, but somebody said that history doesn't repeat itself and it doesn't necessarily run in cycles, but it is cumulative. So what has happened before does add to what's going to come next. And I hope 100% see that. And there have been times that I have fallen into this trap, too, of thinking about this. And this is like, oh, well, this is like if we had the 1918 f- flu pandemic on top of the 1968 riots with Andrew Jackson as president, you know. And although I think that does kind of sum it up fairly well, it's not exactly that either. That's... Just, A convenient shorthand. Well, I've had you on here for about an hour. Um, I, again, thank you profusely for coming on and talking about education, your research, and the current state of our country. Um, If you have any initiatives that you would like to push people towards or social media or anything like that, um, please, the floor is yours. Promote whatever you would like.
2: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it as far as pushing something out there on Instagram, follow decolonize your curriculum because I think as, as educators or even human beings, we have to be vigilant in decolonizing the historical narrative. And that should be our role right now in order to help with what's going on.
0: 100% co-sign that. And I will place a link to that in the show notes when this goes live. Um, Thank you again, Ambar for the time. Um, We will have to do this again sometime when we're not recording, and hopefully the the world is in a slightly better place than it is right now. Um, And, you know, as you go forward, if there's anything that I can do, um, I know at one point you'd ask some other historians to come in and speak with your students. If things keep going up in the fall and you would still want people to do that, I'd be more than happy to. You're you're very welcome. And thank you for listening to the Booking History Podcast.